I don't always text the scripture reader early in the week and say, heads up, but I did this week. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36. If you've got the Pew Bible in front of you, we'll be on page 31. And as always, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and ask questions at any point. We'll take a look at those when we get there done. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Lord God, we have heard already this morning so many important things that we need to hold on to. We've confessed sin, uh, maybe, maybe kind of uncomfortably. That was a, just a long confession of things that Maybe, maybe we've done personally or maybe we feel like we haven't done, but that as a people uh, we are guilty of. We've been reminded of, of your goodness and your love and your graciousness that you will hold us fast. We heard about um, generosity and um, celebration and mourning all in the announcements. We just praise you for, for using that time for our edification. And we just listened to a lot of really difficult names. And, and I, I just imagine um, maybe we're all going like, what, what is that about? Um, but God, you are faithful in all of those things. You're faithful to speak. You're faithful to move by the power of your spirit. And your word is powerful. And I just pray that as we uh, start scratching on this chapter and, and just see what it has for us, that, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would exhort us, that you would rebuke us if, if that's what we need, but that you would just shape us continually to be more and more like your son. We're thankful for the opportunity we have, the freedom that we have um, we're thankful for this gathering space that you've graciously allowed us to use. I just pray that as we um, look at this chapter, you would uh, be glorified and, and we would be edified. In, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to share this quote from Peter Leithart. He says, we are often impatient with music and we are impatient with texts. A writer lingers and we want to grab him by the throat and say, get to the point, man. Evangelicals would reverently refrain from throttling an apostle, but the demand for practical Bible teaching often has a threatening subtext. Don't give me all these names, lists, genealogies, stories. Tell me what to do. Tell me about Jesus. Get to the point will not do because part of the point is to lead us through the labyrinth of the text itself. There is treasure at the center of the labyrinth, but with texts, the journey really is as important as the destination. And I think that is a good reminder. Anytime we come to a place in Scripture where we, we look and go, what is going on here? Uh, a little different, similar, but, but slightly different take from uh, the late J. Vernon McGee. Uh, he says, the Spirit of God used a great deal of printer's ink to tell you this. 
<laughs> and I love that because there's some real truth there. Because in the ancient world, writing was expensive. We have seen story after story after story in this book where we walk away wishing that there were more details. What about this? Or why did they gloss over that? Or I wish I knew something more about this. But Moses doesn't give us details. He just gives us the basics. And now we come to 43 verses worth of details about the family of the guy that isn't even the point of the story. But that's a conscious decision by Moses. This information is worth spending significant resources writing down. I don't have uh, data for Old Testament writing, but it has been estimated that Paul's letter to the Romans would have cost $3,600 to write. That's a lot of money. And so when we see something included in the Bible, using a lot of paper, spilling a lot of ink, even if it's boring, it must be important. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I have to come to this text as we, as we go chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis, and we have to believe that God has this in here for a reason and that it will teach us something as difficult as it is. And so this morning, um, I want to share a couple things that it has taught me this week as I've studied it. I'm sure we could dig into this much more deeply than we have time for. Um, But a couple things that have stood out to me in this genealogy of Esau's family. A couple things that are kind of meta and then something that's more close to the text. And, And the first thing that I think this teaches us about uh, the scriptures is that the script, this is, there's some interesting pieces in here that show us how the scriptures work that we need to be aware of. And the first one is that there are sometimes tensions in the text of scripture. Look at verse one. These are the family records of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanite women, Adah, daughter of Elon the Hethite, Aholibama, daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimath, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basimath bore Ruel, and Oholibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. If we're not paying close attention here, we'll miss this. But in this chapter, chapter 36, Esau's wives' names are different than they were earlier in the story. In chapter 26, verse 34, we read, When Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wives Judith, daughter of Bari the Hethite, and Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hethite. And in chapter 28, we read that Esau realized that his father Isaac disproved of the Canaanite women, so Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Nebaioth. So something's going on here right away, that that there's information in chapter 36 that doesn't match the information we've read earlier. What are we supposed to do with that? 
There's a couple ways we can handle this. Um, one option is that Esau had more than three wives and that only the three recorded here bore him children. Since this is a genealogy, the children are important, and so that's what's being communicated. Now, that, that's difficult for us as Western modern people because we're very information-centric, and, but for someone in the ancient world compiling a genealogy, it wouldn't have been that important to them to relate all of the wives of Esau if all of the wives of Esau didn't have anything to do with the genealogy. So that's a possibility. It's also possible that Esau's wives changed their names or had their names changed by someone. We see that with Abram has his name changed to Abraham. Sarai has has her name changed to Sarah. Jacob has his name changed to Israel. It's possible that the wives had their names changed in some configuration or another. Or its third possibility is that there is a scribal error in the text, that this is, this is just a mistake, either here or earlier. At some point in the history of copying the scriptures, someone messed up. They got confused and they wrote something down wrong. And that's a, that's a, that's a weird thing to think about. We're a, we're a church that, that stands on the authority of the Bible. We're, we're people that say that this is God's word. And so what is that? How, how do you wrestle with the idea that there could possibly be an error I think a very helpful document is something called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It's a, uh, it was a manifesto written in the 20th century about what um, evangelical Christians primarily believe about the Bible. And it says this, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs, and we further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or, in, or irrelevant. What do they mean by this? That, that copies of the scriptures are not inspired and that they may contain errors. So practically, before the invention of the printing press, for thousands of years, when a copy of the Genesis scroll is wearing out and a new one is needed for the community of Israelites, a professional scribe would copy the text letter by letter by hand. And sometimes mistakes were made. And there's a whole field of biblical studies called textual criticism, which is a bunch of scholars who specialize in the differences between different ancient manuscripts of the Bible. And they take these ancient manuscripts and they compile them together and then they translate them into, in our case, English. Sometimes these mistakes are unintentional. Um, There are two letters that are similar in the way they look and they get translated uh, backwards. Think about a lowercase l and an uppercase i in certain contexts can look the same. Some of them are intentional. Sometimes a scribe in good faith, he sees something in the text that seems confusing and, and, and he tries to correct it by changing it a little bit. And, and since we have this long lineage of manuscripts, we can often pinpoint where these things take place. And sometimes these mistakes make it into the manuscript tradition because later scribes see them and they're hesitant to change anything again because of the reverence they have for God's word. 
And you might be thinking like, well, isn't it a real problem to say that the Bible is without error and is authoritative, but it also has mistakes? And I don't think so. Because God's word is the most carefully studied and meticulously copied set of documents in the history of the world. More people study this book and, and, and analyze it and, and look at the history of its transmission than any other ancient document. And the fact that we can recognize when there are errors in the copying shows how careful that copying process has been. F.F. Bruce writes, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is, in truth, remarkably small. And Paul Wegner writes, it's important to keep in perspective the fact that only a very small part of the text is in question. Of these, most variants make little difference to the meaning of any passage. And so this passage where we see a conflict between two sections of Genesis, it would be a mistake to look at that and go like, well, we obviously can't trust the Bible. Now, the fact that this book is so well studied and conflict and tension like this is so easy to pick out apart from things that are not in conflict should give us confidence that the message of the scriptures are true. And so as I studied this week, the scholars that I looked at have a variety of understandings about what's going on here. Some, some are quick to say that this is definitely a scribal error. This is something that, that fell into the transmission history long before we have evidence of it. And so it's just kind of out there somewhere. And the, the discrepancy is because somebody screwed something up. Other scholars would say, no, this is simply because Esau has more wives at this point, And these are the ones that matter to this genealogy. But either way, it leaves us with a tension. And I think it's important to recognize that there is going to be a tension in the scriptures sometimes. I heard someone talking um, about this passage and, and saying that, you know, sometimes we think about the faith as something that needs to be easy, right? We need to enter into the Christian faith and we, maybe we, uh, to say it kind of crudely, we market Christianity as, as simple and easy and, and, and it, it's all really straightforward, and to a large part, that is true. The gospel is simple. It is easy to understand that God loves you and he died for your sins and he wants to make you a part of his family. That message is, is, is easy for even a small child to grasp. But the, the idea that we would hold on to this paradigm of it must be easy or it's unbelievable. If, it, if it's not easy, well, we must throw up our hands and say none of it can be trusted. That's a false dichotomy. This, this library of books is complex and it requires personal study and help from those who have dedicated their lives to these deeper kinds of study more so than we have access to. And we have to be willing as serious students of the authoritative scriptures to look at it in the tensions that it presents to us and, and wrestle with them. And however we come to a solution on our wrestling, and maybe, some, maybe there's some things in this book that we'll never fully figure out. But we have to be willing to understand that those things exist. The second thing that I think this points out about the scriptures itself is that the Old Testament has an editorial team. 
In in verse 31, we read, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. I've mentioned this before in different passages in Genesis, but I think it's important for us to notice whoever is writing this particular part of this chapter is living after the time of the Israelite monarchy, 400 years after the time of Moses. And they make a comment about the state of the world that they are currently living in. And I don't think this is a problem. I, I, think, I think we come to this text sometimes understanding that there is a, a Jewish tradition that Moses wrote it, and we see this alluded to in the New Testament, and I think that's true. I think Moses is the primary author of Genesis. But that doesn't mean he is the only one who put his pen to this text. One of my Bible commentaries believes that Moses has to be responsible for every word of Genesis, and so they postulate that, that, he, that Moses is given some prophetic insight to look into the future and see that Israel will have kings, and then also write about those kings in such a way that would naturally lead people to assume that he is looking into the past at the time, based on the syntax and the grammar of the sentence. But I don't think we have to do that. I don't think we have to believe that. I think it's totally reasonable to assume that there is an editorial tradition that builds on the work of Moses until it gets to its final form, and that this editorial team is also inspired by God. So why would I bring these things up? Possible scribal errors, editors from after the time of Moses. It sounds like I'm trying to bring doubt on the scriptures. What is the reason that I would point out these things this morning? And I have two. The first reason, I think, is because it's honest. Uh, We follow a man who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We can't be people that hide from or gloss over that truth. Uh, I believe that the scriptures are true and I believe that they are life-giving and I believe that they can handle honest wrestling over the difficult parts. I, I think it does us a disservice to ignore them. But the second reason I think is maybe more important and that's because the enemies of the gospel are going to bring it up for you. On YouTube, on TikTok, in history of religion and philosophy courses in college. And they're not going to be motivated to help you wrestle honestly with your faith. They're going to be motivated to actively tear it apart. And I don't want us to be unprepared for those discussions. Don't give them that opportunity in your life or in your kids' lives. Get to know the scriptures really well, understand how they work. And when an atheist who is, who is bent on destroying your faith comes up with some reason why we can't trust the scriptures, you will understand that that reason is foolish. I spent some time this week on like contradictions in the Bible websites. And you guys, they are dumb. By and large, they are incredibly silly and foolish and short-sighted, but they trick a lot of people. A lot of people walk away from their faith because of some clever-sounding person on social media that brings doubt about the scriptures in a way that they can't honestly wrestle with. It makes it seem like foolish to be a Christian. And I don't, I don't think we should be unprepared for that. I think we should recognize that the scriptures are God's word and they are authoritative and they've been given to us by the Holy Spirit. But they're also challenging. They also 
call our assumptions into question, and, and we need to wrestle honestly with them. So this text, I think, gives us a couple insights into kind of how the Bible works, but I think it also, getting into the actual content of the text, shows us something about what I'm calling an ambiguous faith. I think we see the trajectory of an ambiguous faith. I've been working hard uh, this whole section to not paint Esau as the villain of the story. I don't think he's any more particularly wicked than his brother, uh, at least on the surface. Um, And I am not convinced that his status as the unchosen son has any bearing on whether or not he is loved by God personally. However, as Moses ties up his family's loose ends, kind of puts his story to bed so that we can focus on Joseph, I think there is a warning for us in this chapter about living lives with an ambiguous faith. My pastor growing up used to talk about an old commercial by the company Clairol, and it was for hair dye. Some of you may know this. I I had to look it up, but... um, Clairol was selling hair dye, and the catchphrase for the commercial was, only her hairdresser knows for sure. Is that her natural hair color, or does she dye her hair? Only her hairdresser knows for sure. And this is what I mean by an ambiguous faith. Sometimes we have a tendency to live our lives as Christians, but are we? Are we really Christians? Are we living our lives in such a way that reflects who Jesus is? Maybe only God knows for sure. Esau's life leaves us with some questions of ambiguity. And the first question I think he shows us in in the way that Moses tells us his story is that there is an ambiguity about his sexual ethics. We are reminded once again at the top of this chapter that Esau marries outside the covenant family. He ignores the basic sexual ethics that that he has inherited from his grandfather and he marries multiple women outside the covenant. Now, Jacob's marriages are also full of problems, but they are inside the kinship boundaries set up by Abraham. Esau, uh, he he flaunts that um, rebellion and, and chooses marriage partners that are inappropriate. And I think what we do with our sexual ethics is a real marker in our culture of someone who is or is not taking seriously their relationship with Christ. Larry Hurtado in his History of the Church gives five distinctions that the early Christians had that made them stand out in their pagan culture. These are the five. They were multiracial and multiethnic. They were spread across socioeconomic lines and they had a high value for caring for the poor. They were staunch in their resistance to infanticide and abortion. They were nonviolent, and they were resolute in their vision for marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. It's interesting that that listing of values just doesn't map onto any particular culture in our world today. It's, it's a, that combination of priorities is very odd for us. But unfortunately, in, in the church, in in our country, in our community, and in maybe even in this room, especially among young people, we've just made the decision that Christian sexual ethics really don't matter anymore, that it's not really a big deal. 
But I would say that it is. Nancy Percy writes that what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. I hear all the time about uh, Christian people who are unmarried and in sexual relationships with one another. You know, so, so-and-so really loves Jesus and, and, and she just got engaged. You know, they're living together already, but it's going to be really great when they're married. But I, I just, I have questions. Like, are we really interested in following Christ if some of the m- most important decisions about what we do with our bodies, we're just uninterested in God's word? And I think that just the reality is, is if, if you are having sex with someone you're not married to, if you're considering marrying a non-believer, if you're cheating on your spouse or watching pornography with no desire to quit, you should be concerned about how ambiguous that makes your whole walk with God. These are major facets of what it means to follow Christ. And we look at Esau here and we go like, does he really care about the things of God because of the choices that he's made? And I think we should ask ourselves the same question. Secondly, this shows ambiguity about God's people. Look at verse 6. Esau took his wives, sons, daughters, and all the people of his household, as well as his herds, his livestock, and all the property he had acquired in Canaan. He went to a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too many for them to live together, and because of the herds, the land where they stayed could not support them. So Esau, that is Edom, lived in the mountains of Seir. So maybe this part of the story makes you think back to Genesis 13, when Abraham and Lot separate because there isn't enough land, right? You go, you go one way, I'll go the other way. Lot takes up uh, his residence near Sodom and it gets bad for him. Abraham goes the other direction. And on the surface, that seems like that's what's happening. But strangely, back in chapter 34, Hamer, the, the Hivite at Shechem, a town not so far from where they're at, says, these men are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it for indeed... The region is large enough for them. Let's take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. If you recall, this is part of the the story of the sexual violence and then the physical violence uh, that, that takes place in Genesis 34. But Hamer, in the midst of that, tells his people that there's plenty of room for everybody. So what's the deal? Is there not enough room or is there plenty? Is it true that Esau just can't live here? His family just doesn't fit in the land? Now, we know that this is what God has said will happen. This is what Isaac has prophesied about his son, but Esau still makes a free choice to take his family and leave. And I just wonder, does he have a good reason to do that or is he just making an excuse? People come to and then leave church communities for a lot of reasons. And in my experience, when they leave, they usually have a pretty lame excuse. Not always. Sometimes there's a really good reason to leave a bad church situation. But not often. I know so many people that have just given up on the church. They're just not interested in God's people any longer. I hear uh, friends of mine say, you know, we just, we just worship at home. We just, we've, we've taken everything about church and just downsized it into our single family experience. Some people I know, they, they, they're going to they're gonna serve God through the work of a local nonprofit. 
And I think there's nothing wrong with serving God through a local nonprofit, but it's not the same thing as being a part of a church community. You hear things like, I don't need to go to church to be the church. Or I'm just, I'm not getting what I need from the church. Somebody, I heard once with reference to our church that there's nothing Zach could teach me, which is probably true. I, I accept that one. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> Glad you're here. <laughs> but see, this kind of thing, it doesn't happen for no reason. I'm sure living alongside Jacob's family as they inherit the land that Esau doesn't get to have for himself was difficult. I'm sure there would have been friction and struggle and, and hard conversations. And maybe, maybe your experience with God's people has been like that, has been difficult. Mine has. But when I meet Christians who have no taste for community with God's people, I just have questions. There's an ambiguity there. Somebody says, I follow Jesus. And I think like, well, do you? Because my understanding of following Jesus is that you are a part of this community, of a community. Carl Truman writes, St. Paul was certainly well aware of the failings of Christians, even of the wickedness that they could perpetrate in the church's name, as his blunt letters to various congregations indicate. But he never ceased to present the church, flawed, divided, morally compromised as she was, as the meaning and hope of history. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says the church has been created with an eternal purpose, that it is a supernatural organism by which God's wisdom will be revealed to the world. Jesus himself in Matthew 16 says, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, his confession of Jesus as the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus doesn't say that about parachurch ministries, local nonprofits, home Bible study. Those things are all really good things, but they're not God's church. I just wonder when I look at Esau and how he just can't fit in the land with Jacob, I wonder if that's true or if I wonder, I wonder if that's just an excuse. Do, are we people that love God's people? Are we people that love God's church? Or do we just have like a half-baked reason why we're not really interested in being a part of it? And, and in some sense, I, I understand that like I'm, I'm preaching to the choir because you're all at church this morning. But it's a question worth asking of all of our hearts of, of how willing we are to be a part of the community of God's people. I think this passage brings up ambiguity about worldliness. Look at verse 20. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. So we go from Moses listing off Esau's sons to this other guy, Seir, who comes out of nowhere. 
But the, what happens is, is Seir is the guy who's the head of the tribe in the place that Esau moves to. And Esau marries Seir's great-granddaughter, and Esau's son marries Seir's daughter, which makes Esau's daughter-in-law also his grandmother-in-law, which is a weird Thanksgiving dinner. These tribes just sort of merge together. And this is the exact thing that the Hivites in Shechem wanted for Jacob's family. Just, you know, we'll, be, we'll become one tribe. Your daughters will marry our sons and our daughters will marry your sons and it'll just be one big happy family. And there was a problem with that. But we see that Esau's family begins to lose its distinctiveness by merging with another tribe. And I feel like this is often the state of God's people today. We lose our distinctiveness by merging with the world. And as just a, another reminder, I, I, I've said this before, but the purpose of distinctiveness in the Old Testament and, and even in the New is not ethnic. It is religious. That the point of being separate for the Israelites was not because they were xenophobic. They welcomed foreigners into their community and there's whole sections of the law about how to do that. But they were wary of bringing false religions into their community. And Esau, who has a heritage that comes from Abraham's God, just merges his whole family with this guy, Seir, that we don't know anything about. David Wells writes, worldliness is, any particular culture, is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And we find this throughout our culture. Our culture is incredibly worldly. There, is, there are multiple ways that, that sin is upheld as a good thing and righteousness is downplayed as a negative. And we should expect that. I mean, this, this is... We shouldn't be surprised by that, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't necessarily be holding the world to Christian standards. Like, we follow Jesus, they don't. We shouldn't expect them to. But when we come to our own lives, are we, are we worldly people? Just a few, few questions that I ask myself, I want to be aware of. What do we watch on television? Violence, nudity, exalting in sin. And I, I say this as someone who's, my wife and I have watched plenty of television that's, that's hot and popular and new and Netflix and Amazon Prime and everybody's watching it and it's filthy. But it's art, right? And we're, it's not for kids and we're adults and so we should be able to handle it. And, and I've, we've had all kinds of conversations about how it's, it's, it's not a problem, when I was in a cohort of leaders called Convergence, I went to Portland every month for three years to meet with this group of guys to, to do pastoral ministry training. Our, um, the head of our cohort was a guy named Royce Curtis, and he was just in his early 60s, I think, and uh, um, we were just starting to get to know each other. There were, there were eight of us and him. And, and so there was just common, you know, the, 
talk that you come up with when you're getting to know each other, and, and, and it, it moves to television and movies, and, oh, have you seen this, and did you watch that, and did you get this on Amazon Prime, and blah, blah, blah. And we'd start talking about the things that we would watch, and, and, and everybody would just have these, these different shows that would pop up, and, oh, it's such a great show, and i got to fast forward through that one part, but it's really great. And Royce just said, hey, you know what? Me and my wife don't watch smut. And the conversation just died. And I think we all probably thought Royce was kind of harsh. But I wonder if so many of us, and myself included, have, have lowered our standards of holiness when it comes to our entertainment so far that we are indistinguishable from the world. What about how we talk to people we don't know? Public figures, politicians from the other side of the aisle, they're never going to hear our words. They're much too important for us. But how do we talk about them anyway? What do we say about them? Do we, do we speak the truth in love or do we needlessly tarnish their character and pass on lies? What do the words that we use say about what's inside of our hearts? Do we join in with everyone else in the way we communicate? Or do we speak differently? Speaking of our speech, how do we speak to our kids when we're not in public? What sort of Christian do they see at home? Would they understand our faith by the way that we, they, treat, they are treated? How do we spend our money? How do we spend our free time? Are we investing in things that will bear fruit in eternity? I loved <laughs> Brandy's totally off the cuff talk on generosity this morning. Way to go. But so true that like we should have different priorities. And sometimes I think our priorities are exactly the same as the world around us. Can we look at our lives and point to ways that we are different from the world around us because of the spirit of Christ that lives in us? Or do we just blend in with the world? If we aren't careful, we just disappear. We no longer have a witness of the love of God because we're just like everyone else. The family of Esau and the family of Seir, they just blend together and they become the Edomites. And the hard thing about this is I feel this pull personally. Like, I want to be relevant. I want to be welcomed into society. I've got all kinds of excuses for why it's missional to be up on all of everybody's entertainment choices and everything. I may have shared this uh, a couple, number of weeks ago, but I was on the phone with a, uh, a client. I, I, do, I do video production work part-time, for those of you that don't know that. And I was on the phone with a client, and it was just kind of a get-to-know-you call. And uh, he was just swearing like a sailor just about everything that came up, came, everything that came out of his mouth. Every other word was a swear word. And uh, he asked me, like, so do you do, you do this full time or do you, do you split your time? And I said, yeah, I'm actually, I pastor a little church part time. And he goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for my swearing. And I said, hey man, it's no big deal. It's okay. I've heard those words before. Don't worry about it. And as I, as I think about that, like, part of, it is, part of that is true. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to shrivel up and die because I heard you use a swear word. I'm, I'm, it's, it's part of the world that we live in. 
But I think also part of my motivation in that conversation is like, I, I don't want to just relieve you of that tension. I, w- I want to assure you that I don't, f- I, I'm not offended by it. I'm, I'm just like you. I'm cool like that. Maybe I'm not going to swear like that. Maybe I don't swear as much or at all, but like, I'm, I feel just like you are and everything's cool. I want to be, I want to be welcomed into your little group. And I don't think I have those thoughts consciously in the moment, but as I reflect on that situation, I think that lives in me. And I don't know, maybe I should have said like, yeah, that's super tasteless, man. You should learn some better vocabulary words. I didn't do that. I wanted to get the job. (laughs) But I'm alarmed at myself and how quickly I just want to be seen as one of you when I'm surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. James says, (laughs) I love James. In chapter four, you adulterous people, you don't, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. I think I need to hear that sometimes. They were supposed to be different. And I don't think that means we're supposed to be jerks. I don't think we should be like, you know, out there correcting everyone's speech. But if, if I have mannerisms and language that have been shaped by the gospel and infused by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in me and it makes people react strangely to me and think I'm weird then maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's evidence that God is actually working in my life. And that that pull that I have to be accepted by the world is something that I should resist. Lastly, this morning, ambiguity becomes hostility. Verse 12 says, Timnah, a concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz, bore Amalek to Eliphaz. And you think, that's fantastic. What does that mean? (laughs) The Amalekites in later centuries would become a violent enemy of Israel. They attacked the people of Israel after they came out of Egypt. And then later on, one of their kings, Agag, has a lineage of his own that leads to a man named Haman. If you've ever read the book of Esther, Haman is the villain in the book of Esther whose sole purpose in life is to exterminate the Jews. He's like, I mean, he's basically Hitler in the book of Esther. And this all comes from the Amalekites. But then the Edomites in general, unlike Esau, who reconciles with his brother Jacob, the Edomites become hostile to the people of Israel. In Numbers 20, we read, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. This is what your brother Israel says. You know all the hardships that have overtaken us. Our ancestors went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt many years, but the Egyptians treated us and our ancestors badly. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our plea and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now look, we're in Kadesh, a city on the border of your territory. Please let us travel through your land. We won't travel through any field or vineyard or drink any well water. We will travel the king's highway. We won't turn to the right or the left until we have traveled through your territory. But Edom answered him, you will not travel through our land or we will come out and confront you with the sword. 
We will go on the main road, the Israelites replied to them. And if we or our herds drink your water, we will pay its price. There will be no problem. Only let us travel through on foot. Yet Edom insisted, you may not travel through. And they came out to confront them with a large force of heavily armed people. Edom refused to allow Israel to travel through their territory, and Israel turned away from them. So this continues, this hostility between the people of Israel and the Edomites builds and builds for hundreds of years until we read in the book of Obadiah, this is the whole point of the book of Obadiah, judgment on the Edomites. Because when the Babylonians came to conquer Israel in 586 BC, the Edomites joined in on the attack against the Israelites. And they rounded up the survivors that were fleeing the siege, and they handed them over to the Babylonians. This this trajectory of an ambiguous faith leads to open hostility. And my guess is is that you know people like this, people who used to be Christians, who used to have a a vibrant faith, and now they've they've deconstructed or or something else, maybe they label it, and they just don't want to have anything to do with Jesus anymore. And they're they're not just contently not Christians, they're actively upset that anyone else still is. Maybe you have friends like this who are just kind of obnoxiously trying to talk you out of walking with God because they quit following Jesus. But that sort of trajectory doesn't happen overnight. By the time a a person uh, announces one day on Instagram that they have left the faith and they hate the church and now they've become enlightened, they started down that path a long time ago. And this is what we see in Esau's family, that it builds on his own priorities, on his own um, decision to leave the land, to be apart from the people of Israel. And for a thousand years, he just goes his own way. Scriptures still identify him as Israel's brother, but he's compromised and he's uninterested in the covenant. But it doesn't end there. After generations of, of faithfulness to the Israelites, God fulfills his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by unveiling the Messiah, the King, the anointed one who would redeem the world in the birth of Jesus. And who is there to meet him? Matthew 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. We do a little research on King Herod. Who's he? Well, he's an Edomite. And his role in the story is to try to murder the king, to kill the Son of God. And that might be a little hyperbolic for our application this morning. But I think there is a real danger for us in becoming the kinds of people who would turn on Jesus if he threatened our power, or that we would slip slowly, imperceptibly away from Christ, farther and farther and farther from the people of God, farther and farther from a relationship with Jesus. 
And I think the question for all of us this morning is, is, is our relationship to Jesus just a little bit ambiguous? Are we not really taking Christ and his people as seriously as we used to or have ever? And I just, I don't want to be that person. I don't want, I don't want us to be those people. And the, the truth is, is that Jesus has so much grace for us this morning. If, if you're sensing in your heart that like, yeah, I, I have been that person. I go out into the world and people don't know that I'm a Christian. Maybe, maybe you feel like I actively hide it from them. And there could be a thousand reasons for that. But Jesus is so patient. He, just, he longs for us to draw near to him. He invites us over and over and over again to just renew that covenant with him. God speaks to us in Isaiah 55. And he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's so interesting to me that verse gets taken out of context to just talk about how we can't understand God because his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, and that's true. But look at what he's talking about. His thoughts about you are so much higher than you can understand. His willingness, his desire, his longing to bring forgiveness to you, to show compassion on you, to draw you to himself are so unbelievably vast that we can't understand it. And that's his call to all of us, whether, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or not, if you feel like you've strayed or you feel like, man, it's been a pretty good week, honestly. No matter where you're at, like the call of God on you is, I love you, I want you, come to me. And I know for so many of us, you're like, nah, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. I don't think that's true. And so God says, yeah, you just don't understand my thoughts. They're so much higher than your thoughts. My ways are so much different than your ways. No matter what you've done, how far you've slid from the truth, God says, you cannot comprehend how much I want you. And so as we close this morning, if, if you sense ambiguity in your heart, if there's a trajectory in your life, even if it's just a little bit that's moving you in the way of Esau, I just encourage you to do whatever you need to today to return to the Lord, to correct that. Because he wants to pour out his compassion on you. He wants to receive you with love and kindness and care. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the, the Sunday of the year where we commemorate Jesus riding into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey with the crowds, celebrating him as king the week prior to his crucifixion. Um, but the f crazy thing is about that story is that everyone in that crowd 
that is super excited about Jesus, they have no idea what they're saying and what it really means. Jesus is definitely headed to a throne, but that throne will be shaped like a cross. The scepter he holds as king will be used to beat him. The crown he wears will be made of thorns. And we swear allegiance afresh to our king every week by being reminded of his coronation, his death on that cross. And so whether you are struggling with doubt, whether you're living a life that's ambiguous in your faith, maybe you're having the best Sunday ever, no matter where you're at, I I just want to invite you in a few minutes to come to this table and to take the bread and the cup the reminder of Jesus' broken body and shed blood on your behalf to receive the grace of God afresh. We're going to sing. We're going to stand together and recite the creed to remind one another of the God that we serve. And I would just encourage you to take the communion back to your seat to reflect on what the Spirit is saying to you to be open, to being corrected, to being encouraged, to being rebuked, and knowing that whatever you need from the Lord right now comes from his love and his compassion for you. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.